It was the decision of central banks to slash interest rates originally 15, 20 years ago that was really the problem. And that caused debt to begin to spiral out of control. Most of the financial crises we've seen in the last 20 years or so have been about refinancing, inability to refinance, and the central banks have to come back and throw more liquidity back into the system. We've got a lot of ground to cover here. Um, I want to start uh, basically by a, a kind of a high-level summation of this book that you wrote, Capital Wars, The Rise of Global Liquidity. Um, and the reason that I want to get your framework here is because I think you laid out uh, some very important concepts um, and you helped me connect some dots, right, in between the the rising importance of global liquidity in financial markets, but also kind of connecting that with some of the geopolitical strain that we're seeing in between the United States and, and China. Um, so I actually wanted to start with, uh, you know, kind of the the you know, the, the starting point for, for your book is this observation that uh, the as the financial world has gotten larger, it's also become more volatile, which mm -hmm. is a paradox, I think, for many. Um, and I think that's the that's the direct result of two different facets of modern capitalism, which is cost deflation uh, in the real economy and monetary inflation in financial markets. So maybe using that as a jumping off point, can Correct. you explain why, as the financial world has gotten bigger, things seem more volatile and kind of touch on those two key topics? Yeah, I think the I think the 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 main the main reason is that the financial structure has become more fragile. I mean, that's that's the 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 sort of basic point, and that financial structure is increasingly held together. Maybe it's uh, held together with tape and string by by liquidity and by central banks, and that that's really the sort of the paradox in this whole this whole picture. You know, much of the media decries China for having a very uh, or particularly vulnerable financial system. The paradox is that maybe the financial system of the West is actually more prone to crisis. China's financial system actually is very simple. Uh, it's not particularly sophisticated, and it's being overseen and run very tightly by the People's Bank of China. Now, it's very difficult to compare those financial systems. One is nascent, the Chinese one, and one is highly sophisticated. But the more sophisticated the financial system becomes in the West, the potentially the more fragile it is. And, and that's really the, the point. The whole idea about global liquidity was a concept that uh, basically grew up, uh, well, probably now 30 years ago when I was working at Salomon Brothers, the US investment bank. Uh, Salomon Brothers, for those people that don't know, was the preeminent trader worldwide. It was the world's biggest fixed income house. Uh, it was dominant in Forex and uh, and treasury securities. It was the market in treasuries in, in many countries, particularly the US. And basically, Salomon, uh, from a trading standpoint, saw the flow of money coming into and out of securities. But it was very clear from that, from that uh, experience that flows of money, flows of liquidity were really the critical factor to watch in terms of understanding how financial markets operated. If you knew where these flows were going, where they originated and where they ended up, those capital flows are really the, the instrumental driver of both financial markets and ultimately the world economy. I think a lot of us are kind of looking at this paradox, right, of, of a larger financial system, right, especially in especially in the West as compared to East in, in say, China, um, and saying, well, look, we, we have a lot more liquidity in the system. To, and to your point, that's the most important thing. But we seem to keep suffering these financial crises. So can you walk us through why exactly that is? And maybe with, you know, emphasize the importance of collateral, especially in our Western mm -hmm. financial system and how that all works? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the, the, the sort of starting off point is to say that, you know, uh, throw away your economics textbooks because they're they're pretty much irrelevant to the understanding here. Um, 
If you look at economic textbooks, what they tell you is the most important factor in the financial markets is interest rates. Well, interest rates would be important if the world were about capital spending. In other words, if the main drivers uh, were capital spending and if financial markets were geared to raising new capital. The thing is, they're not anymore. Financial markets, as we see them, are basically refinancing mechanisms for the huge amount of debt that uh, exists on balance sheets, whether it be the consumer sector, the corporate sector, or the government sector. Everyone has basically been, uh, you know, is uh, is now debt ridden. Uh, the debt has become a drug uh, that everyone's using. And the fact is that debt needs to be refinanced. So if you look at the world economy, there is something like $350 trillion of debt outstanding. That debt has an average maturity of about five years, which simple math tells you that about $70 trillion on average has to be refinanced or rolled over every year. Now, if you're doing a roll of debt, uh, what matters is not really so much the rate of interest. Clearly, that's important, but it's not crucial. What matters is whether you get the roll or not. Uh, if you don't get the roll and you're a corporate, you default. Uh, if you don't get the role, the role and you're a mortgagee, you're homeless. So these are the things which really focus attention. And the world economy is very much uh, about refinancing. World financial markets are a refinancing mechanism. Now, just to compare that, to put the uh, put this in context with uh, with new capital spending, the world economy is around one hundred trillion dollars in size. Okay, so debt is approximately three and a half times that uh, that flow. Of that one hundred trillion, about one fifth is capital spending, and about half that capital spending. Uh, is externally financed through the capital markets. So you're talking about something like $10 trillion, which you've got to compare with the 70. So in other words, the refinancing that occurs in, in markets now, financial markets now, is seven times the new financing. So forget what these economic textbooks say. Uh, finance is not about new financing and interest rates. It's about refinancing and balance sheet. A balance sheet is about liquidity and understanding these flows. Liquidity is a is a concept which is akin to the capacity of capital in the system, the ability to refinance. So I want to take a moment to unpack how we got here uh, and then talk about the implications of what you just said, right? Because that $350 trillion number is an enormous number. And I think you outlined um, a misunderstanding that central banks had globally as to how we we allowed ourselves to accumulate that enormous amount of right. debt, whereas central banks saw it as a, as a monetary deflation uh, when really it was China entering the world trade, the WTO, basically. Can you walk us through exactly what happened there and how that led to this huge stockpile of debt that we have? Absolutely. And I think that you know the there is uh, there is a uh, a mis a misunderstanding generally uh, among policymakers about the type of inflation that we've been suffering uh, over the course of the last I'm talking here the last two decades, and there is uh, uh, a widespread fear among policymakers about entering deflation because we're we're taught uh, again by the history books or the textbooks that deflation is bad. That was the, the problem in the 1930s with the, with the Great Depression, et cetera. Uh, particularly in the US, it was all about deflation, uh, collapsing banks, et cetera. Now, I think you've got to look very carefully at inflation. You've got to distinguish uh, between what we call cost inflation and another concept, which is monetary inflation. Or equally, let's think of cost deflation or cost inflation, a monetary inflation and monetary deflation. One is about the real economy and about real costs 
in other words, labor costs or raw material costs that have uh, obviously a bearing on inflation. But there's another dimension that comes in, which is monetary inflation or deflation. What the central bank should have been worried about is the concept of monetary inflation or deflation, because that's the bad type of inflation. I'm not saying that uh, that the other inflation is good, but it's manageable. So, for example, if you mm. see a deflation coming through costs, it could be the result of productivity changes. Uh, it could be efficiency gains or whatever. It could be just a sudden drop in oil prices uh, if the Saudis, for example, uh, decided to slash uh, prices. That would be effectively a good thing for most of the West uh, to experience, okay? If it was monetary deflation, there was not enough money in the system, that would be a bad type of deflation. Now, if you look at where we are now, just to clarify what I'm saying, you know, what we're looking at is a combination of cost inflation because of higher energy bills and also monetary inflation because of the largesse of the central banks and the policymakers over the course of the COVID crisis. So there's a combination out there right now. But if we go back 20 years ago when these problems began, what we saw was mm. China entering the World Trade Organization and China basically, you know, right, almost writing its own rules here. And uh, China was allowed to compete um, and it effectively flooded the world. Uh, markets with very, very cheap Chinese goods. Okay. Now, there are benefits there. Let's not get that wrong. But the fact is that that had an impact on price levels in the West and it caused a cost, downward cost shock. So a lot of products were cheaper. And if you looked at headline inflation numbers, you'd see inflation was uh, affecting testing lows uh, in some countries actually going to negative inflation rates. The central banks mistook that for a monetary deflation. And they said, whoa, bad. So what we've got to do is we've got to try and stop this monetary deflation. And so what they did is they relaxed policy. Okay, uh, They cut interest rates. They expanded their balance sheets. There were maybe occasions of increased fiscal spending. There was a lot more demand, which was then juicing the system. Now, the problem with that is that low interest rates in particular encourage people to take on debt. And that is the beginnings of why we got this big debt pile. Now, there are other reasons, of course. Uh, and you might say that actually the entry of China into the WTO uh, was a move of unfair competition in many ways. It caused uh, big problems for many Western firms. It challenged uh, their positions. They were forced to borrow. Uh, debt loads went up etc. Uh, jobs were lost. Consumers then had to borrow. So there were, there were knock-on effects, which also led to debt increase. But fundamentally, it was the decision of central banks to slash interest rates uh, You know, back uh, originally 15, 20 years ago that was really the problem. And that caused debt to begin to spiral out of control. And as debt spirals out of control, you need more liquidity in the system for refinancing. If you don't get the liquidity coming into the system, you get problems of rolling debt over, you get financial crises. Most of the financial crises we've seen in the last 20 years or so have been about refinancing, inability to refinance, and the central banks have to come back and throw more liquidity back into the system. Now, just before I finish this bit, what I'd also like to add mm. is there's another cost to this, which is 
liquidity is fungible. So if you're using liquidity to roll debt over, the liquidity stays in the system and it can move off elsewhere and cause asset prices elsewhere in the system to rise. So then what you start to see are significant wealth effects. So those people that own assets uh, are then getting significant gains from the effect of this increased liquidity. It's uh, you know a cost, or let's say it's a cost in inverted commas, a benefit for some, but it basically polarizes society. And you know, policymakers have got to start thinking about the bigger picture here. Yeah, the reason I, I like this explanation so much is this book. You know, you wrote back in 2020, but I think it very accurately describes the situation that all of us are living through today. And if anything, things have accelerated, I think, quite a bit since you wrote the book, Capital Wars. Um, can you, let, let's unpack a little bit uh, about, I, I think, the the consequence, right? Like the, the, there's wealth inequality, right? And then there's also rising volatility here. So can you, let's take an example, like a recent example, right? Maybe you can either pick the great financial crisis or COVID, but can you walk us through actually mechanically how when uh, balance sheet capacity and the inability to roll debt uh, happens, how how does that ripple into a financial crisis? Maybe if you could pick a recent one in history, we can actually walk through how that how that played out. Yeah, I think that you know if you go back to the great financial crisis in two thousand and eight, if you go back to the uh, significant wobble in the treasury market in twenty nineteen, or if you look at the COVID crisis in March twenty twenty, all these events are connected in the same way. They have the same root, and basically it comes back to an inability to roll debt or positions over and. The point, the point about uh, the financial system is you, you basically need access to liquidity to do that. If you don't get that, there's a risk of default. And if there's a risk of de- default, there's a cascade through the system. In other words, it's like a sort of row of dominoes, one being knocked, and then the whole row just essentially just, uh, you know, collapses. And that's the issue. And we saw that very much in the case of uh, Lehman in 2008 when the failure of Lehman sort of cascaded through the system because there were lots of interconnectivity uh, between Lehman and many other actors in the, in the system. So you can see these effects. If you come back to the, uh, to the Treasury market woes of uh, late summer 2019, the Treasury market is absolutely the center of not just the US financial system, but the global financial system because Treasuries are uh, the the sort of the main safe asset in the system, and if you've got problems, illiquidity in the treasury market, then the whole system is ultimately threatened. So you know, again, that's a, a question of getting needing more liquidity, and the Federal Reserve in both those cases responded by expanding its balance sheet and putting more liquidity into the system. Uh, the error that the Fed had made in 2019 was that they basically had. Uh, they were doing a, a tightening, a, a, a mini QT at the time, and they were basically reducing the size of their balance sheet and consequently uh, money market liquidity and by corollary banks reserves were then getting below minimum thresholds. And that was a, that was a problem. In that situation, people tend to, or investors tend to panic uh, and they tend to hoard liquidity and liquidity far from being fungible becomes non-fungible. People hoard it. It doesn't flow the, through the system and you get just a, a, a cratering of, uh, of, of uh, financial asset prices, which we saw. The COVID crisis was another example of that. And you know what you saw in the COVID crisis was very much a sudden risk-off situation. Now, in a risk-off situation, everybody moves for liquidity as fast as they can. If there are shortages of liquidity, 
then that situation it becomes exaggerated and there are fire sales of assets. So if you look at what happened to uh, the US stock market in March of 2020, um, and even compare it with where we are now, I mean, there was an absolute uh, you know, crash in prices that it took the Federal Reserve's uh, you know, very abundant supply of liquidity or reinjections of liquidity uh, to actually push the market back up again. And the Fed was very successful, uh, actually, in truth, in all three occasions. The Federal Reserve bailed the system out. Now, the thing to remember is that the Federal Reserve has evolved here very quickly uh, from being uh, essentially uh, back in 2007, a financial institution uh, that was very national uh, in its outlook and maybe in its scope, and it was being ver- very much overshadowed by what were then uh, large and fast-growing shadow banks. Do you remember the term shadow banking? Shadow mm-hmm. banks are very important at that time. The Federal Reserve had kind of been muscled out of the markets, but it was ne- it needed to come back very quickly. And what we've seen in the period since the global financial crisis in that decade is the Federal Reserve and the U.S. Treasury have basically overtaken the shadow banks. They've increased their presence and their footprint in the system, both through increasing the size of their ball- the Fed balance sheet. So the Fed balance sheet is now significantly bigger than it was in 2007. I um, mean, we're talking of you know nine times bigger in many ways. And you're also looking at regulation uh, that has forced uh, that has basically capped the ability of uh, of shadow banks to grow and has forced traditional banks to hold more uh, safe assets, uh, banks and insurance companies. The Basel III rules have been changed. Uh, generally, banking regulations improved significantly. Not that banks were necessarily the problem back in uh, 2008, but they're actually they're the solution now. And a robust and well-regulated banking system is considered by the authorities uh, to be a mainstay of financial stability, uh, which is how they're operating. But the corollary of all this is that, you know, from being overshadowed by the shadow banks, excuse the, the, uh, the, the term, but uh, by, by overshadowed by the shadow banks in 2007, the Federal Reserve and the Treasury are now the dominant players within the system. And if you come back to what is really important in terms of understanding these liquidity flows globally, it's actually three players now. It's the Federal Reserve in number one place. It's the People's Bank of China in number two place. And it's, if you like, the offshore dollar markets, the old euro dollar markets, which still play a role, which have probably been pushed down to number three. But the Fed is very much in the in the center of things and it's in control. And what's more, take a look at the swap lines that the Federal Reserve has put in place around the world for friends to borrow uh, dollars. These swap lines are like, uh, you know, the Fed opening a foreign branch uh, you know, offshore overseas to actually provide dollars to the global financial system. And think about that or read that in the context of Janet Yellen's friendshoring speech to the Atlantic Council back in April, which is a very, very important speech, which was later reiterated by Blinken in some of his remarks about China. Um, I don't want to make assumptions here, but I think it's safe to assume that you're a Brit uh, based on the accent and sitting maybe in a seat over in Europe. Can you give us uh, give just a little bit of an understanding of what's going on in, in that? Because in many ways, I think Europe is the canary in the coal mine. You know, you kind of hear all this stuff that the stress of energy costs uh, has been very crippling to the European economy. And I think particularly Germany, right, uh, has is in a particularly poor situation, which for me, with my limited understanding, is worrisome because that's kind of like 
the stalwart, that's the strong economy, right, that has held the EU together. So can you just give us a sense of like everything that's going on over in Europe and in what is, is that an accurate viewpoint that uh, Europe might be the, the kind of canary in the coal mine here, so to speak? Yeah, I think that, I think it's a, it's a, it's a very good point, Michael. I think that, you know, what you've got to do is to look at two very, very different, but connected themes. One is what's happened to energy. Uh, and second mm-hmm. is basically the whole structure and architecture of the Euro- of the European monetary system. So let's unpack right. those things one at a time. If you look at the energy situation, the energy uh, crisis in Europe basically goes right back to the 1950s, and it goes back to uh, what was what in uh, in Britain we think of as what was called the Suez Crisis, when Britain, France, and Israel. Uh, basically invaded Egypt and took back control of the Suez Canal. Okay, uh, the Suez Canal had basically been nationalised by the Egyptians uh, under Nasser, and Nasser had bent America's ear, and America came back and said very pointedly to Britain, uh, "Get out, otherwise you're toast." Basically. Um, in other words, we're going to come down really hard on you. So you know. Sterling would be, you know, devastated and whatever else. So just get out now. So the the Brits backed off very quickly to that to that situation, and uh, it was all about uh, NASA trying to persuade America that uh, Arab countries were not being treated uh, uniformly and fairly. Okay, and America basically felt that was, you know, in the interest of fairness. Maybe NASA was correct. And that's why they took that position. Coming out of that, the reason that's important, the coming out of that, uh, France took the view that we could that France couldn't really depend on Middle Eastern oil. So part of the direction that French energy policy took was to go nuclear, and part of the decision was to try and get more oil from North Africa. And remember that Algeria was then part of the French Empire; uh, it was part of France, and it was technically in the EU, okay? Subsequently, it got independence, but let's not trouble with that right now. Germany took the view that it couldn't rely on either America or it couldn't rely on the Middle East. And so it took the decision that it basically had to go in with Russia. So the original pipelines between Russia and Germany, if my memory is correct or my facts are correct, were were built in the 1960s. And then we, that whole situation has been, you know, has now uh, become much, much greater with, uh, you know, with the uh, various Nord Stream 1, Nord Stream 2, et cetera. Now, if you look at the decisions that have been made, uh, particularly by Merkel's government when she was in power, uh, they are head scratching uh, decisions. And they're decisions like there was an equivalent South Stream uh, pipeline that was supposed to be feeding uh, Greece and uh, Italy, if I recall, and Merkel said no to that. As a result of that, the pipeline was renamed Turkstream, and it went through Turkey and then to uh, Italy and Greece. So now Turkey has enormous power in the distribution of energy to the southern European countries, Okay, but it still ultimately comes from uh, Russia. Uh, Another decision that was made was the uh, willingness or unwillingness, as the case may be, to allow Ukraine to join uh, the European Union back in 2010. Merkel said no to that. Uh, Merkel has said yes to Nord Stream 1 and Nord Stream 2. These are all very curious decisions 
but they're playing very much into the hands of Russian diplomacy and Russian power. So Europe is now hooked on Russian energy, and it simply can't get off very quickly. And that is a big, big problem if Russia is the enemy, which it is by all accounts, okay? Well, that's how we view it. So they've got a big problem, and Putin is Putin knows how to twist the knife, okay? You know, let's not yeah. underestimate the Russians. They're ver- a very clever people, and Putin has a clear aim here. And his aim is to cripple Europe, and, you know, that's what he will. He knows how to do. He'll do that through the energy tool. They haven't got the problem solved. Uh, you know, he's going to make it very difficult for them to have gas uh, or oil, particularly gas, though, uh, through, the, uh, through the winter months. That's point number one. This is a long-term problem. That's not going to go away, right? Problem number two is the European Union and or the European monetary mm-hmm. system. The European monetary system, or the euro, let's think of it as the euro, is uh, a fixed exchange rate system as we know. Every fixed exchange rate system in history has one clear trait, and that is true whether it's the US dollar uh, system in the US, in the United States, or the British pound in the UK. What happens is that in a fixed exchange rate system, the rich the rich regions of an economy get richer, more wealthy, and the poor regions get poorer uh, over time. So look at how that happens in the US. The rich states are always getting richer, and the poor states, particularly in the southern states uh, of the US, are getting poorer, right? So how is that alleviated? Same problem in the UK. The rich areas like the southeast get richer, and the poorer fringe like Scotland, uh, Ireland, Wales get poorer, okay? So what happens? You have a fiscal transfer mechanism. In the US, it's the social security system, and it's government procurement. So a lot of military bases are in the South. A lot of the armament firms are there too. They're providing employment, and they're providing income. And that is how uh, it's essentially alleviated. Now go to Europe. So what do you get? The rich regions get richer, the poor get poorer, okay? Italy, Greece, Spain get poorer progressively. The rich north, Germany, Netherlands, uh, etc., Denmark, probably Austria, get richer, okay? And that's how the equation is working. Some of the higher productivity Eastern European economies, like the Czech Republic, uh, to some extent Hungary, increasingly Poland, are now getting more power because they've got some big productivity gains they're making, and they've got... Uh, competitiveness uh, wins over the southern European states. So you're getting this cleaving in Europe between the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting ever poorer. Now, how is that bridged? It certainly isn't bridged by uh, fiscal transfers because there aren't any really to speak of. There's minimal stuff, okay, a few uh, yeah, pan-European spending programs, but it's absolutely dropping the uh, dropping the bucket here. So basically, the only way it's bridged is that asset prices start to adjust. So asset prices in the northern states go up. Okay, people get wealthier. Asset prices in the south go down. And that's the, that's the problem that Europe faces. Now, if, you've, if you're in one of the southern states like Italy, what you've got to do is the only way that you alleviate these problems is you start to spend more fiscally, but you've got to take on more debt. So the debt burden of the Italians within the European system is growing the whole time. And during the COVID crisis, it was probably easier to manage because the ECB was in there buying this debt. 
so they could provide the extra liquidity to basically hoover up uh, a lot of the extra debt that was being uh, that was being sold. Now you've got the e the ECB pulling back because the COVID crisis is over. Let's say you've got a problem. Italy's got more de- a bigger debt burden. Someone's got to buy that debt, and there is the risk of fragmentation in the eurozone bond markets for the simple reason that everybody wants uh, the the good quality debt, the Bund, the German Bund. Uh, you know, despite Germany's you know, structural problems over energy is still, you know, um, you know, the the more attractive of the European economies. Whereas Italy, Italian debt is starting yields are starting to move out. Now, there's only one solution to that, which is ba- well, it actually, I beg pardon. There are two solutions. One solution is essentially to move to a um, uh, a sort of uh, pan-European debt market where you've got uh, a fiscal consolidation across Europe. Northern Europe is never, never going to vote for that. Okay, so forget it. And the other is that the ECB prints money. You know, to use Draghi's words from uh, you know ten years ago, they will do whatever it takes. Now, uh, that works in a situation where you're inflating, where the central bank can inflate its balance sheet. But where you've got an inflation problem uh, in the high street, it's very difficult for. Uh, the central bank to print money, as you understand. And therefore, there is a great reluctance to commit the ECB to this money printing. If they don't print money, you'll get fragmentation in the eurozone. The only resolution, the only realistic resolution, as far as I can see, is for the euro to decline in value substantially. And we're talking Mm -hmm. about, you know, 20% down or something. Right. Uh, so just minor problems that Europe is facing. Yeah, yeah, these, uh, are, so that get- these are big problems. I mean, let's make, let, let's make no mistake about that. Energy is critical <laughs> and inflation is critical. To, to say that Germany, uh, with a, an inflation print of over 10%, okay, has got the highest inflation rate for, I think it's 70 years. This is important. This is important stuff. Uh, I want to get your opinion on the global monetary system that we have today. Um, and the U.S.'s spot in that monetary system and how that's going to play out in, in the geopolitical conflict or, let's say, power competition right. in, in the decades ahead. Uh, there's been a lot of um, focus recently, right? Zoltan Posar, right, of Credit Suisse has been, uh, you know, kind of there's Bretton Woods 3 or 2 or 3, and, and we've evolved from the, the existing monetary system with the U.S. dollar at the center to one that's a higher focus on commodities because, uh, you know, as he loved to say, the central bank can't print wheat. I think you are actually of the opinion that the existing Bretton Woods framework is largely intact. Mm-hmm. So can you just walk us through, like, your your conception of Bretton Woods? You know, how intact is it still today, and, and how is that that functioning on the global stage? Yeah, I think you, you've got to look at a, at a broader uh, concept of really what Bretton Woods uh, is or was okay, and there are a number of facets for Bretton Woods. I mean, one was that the U.S. dollar was at the center of the system. Okay, um, the second thing was that basically uh, the U.S. military, uh, stroke navy, uh, basically policed the system insofar as that you know the the monetary system was all about uh, expanding trade or having cross-border trade and ultimately cross-border capital moving between different, uh, different nations worldwide. But somebody had to police the shipping lanes and to make sure that trade, that trade wasn't compromised by whatever, uh, military force or terrorism or whatever. The U.S. basically played an important role in that behind the scenes with the U.S. Navy or the U.S. military, uh, 
presence there. Uh, so the whole world trading system really depends on on America in that regard. And then the third thing is that when he came to the discipline of individual countries, you then had the IMF and the World uh, the World Bank, which were which would go in and they would both audit countries. Uh, they would make sure that the uh, their uh, their finances were integral, uh, etc. And if there was a need for adjustment. Uh, that would be organized through the IMF and the World Bank. There would be temporary loans or uh, restructuring policies, etc. And that was sort of generically called, certainly through the 1990s, the Washington Consensus. And that was how countries operated. Now, fourth point is that back in 1944, when Bretton Woods was uh, started, um, there were fixed currencies. Okay. But I wouldn't say that fixed currencies were, was the integral part or the key point part about Bretton Woods. The first three were the most important elements. Now, if you if you look to where we are now, I don't think there's a Bretton Woods two. I don't think there's a Bretton Woods three. I think there's a Bretton Woods one. I think it's still there. Okay, the dollar's still central to the system. Economists, for as long as I can remember, have been saying that we're going to see the demise of the dollar uh, in the international monetary system. Uh, because they equate that to uh, the diminishing share of US GDP in the world economy. So that was the sort of consensus view back, you know, certainly 20 years or more ago, that the dollar would decline, uh, along with pari pursue with the US economy. But that clearly hasn't happened. It's gone the other way. The US dollar has become more and more and more important in the world, uh, not less. And that's really the, you know, that that's really one of the things to try and understand. So uh, it's, you know, there is no Bretton Woods 2. There is no Bretton Woods 3. Bretton Woods 1 is intact. Uh, world trade is dependent on the US. Uh, you know, if the Chinese try and do try and go it alone, uh, how are the Chinese going to get their oil uh, from the Middle East back to China? That's a long sea route. Who's going to police that? Do the Chinese Navy have the ability to do that? Uh, there is risk of, you know, if China falls out with Taiwan or with Japan, ultimately, uh, the Japanese or the Taiwanese have got the ability to significantly dis disrupt uh, Chinese energy imports. I mean, you know, these, these are realistic facts in a geopolitical world. So, you know, the dollar and the US is still very much number one in this whole equation. Now, if you look at what is evolving here, there are clearly challenges to the US dollar. Let's make no, no mistake about that. But they're not short-term challenges. They're, they're longer-term, medium-term questions. And one of those is what is the role of the euro or what is the role of uh, the Chinese yuan, etc. Now, the euro uh, was originally uh, constructed to challenge the US dollar, uh, and it was uh, – uh, you know, it was it was basically there as uh, it, it came from the French initiatives to try and try and say that you know the the U.S. had a very unfair advantage uh, with the dollar and therefore Europe needed to get its share of what was called seigneurage, which is the ability to uh, essentially buy resources with paper. So if the U.S. dollar bill costs the U.S. Treasury, you know, one cent to print. Uh, and they spend it internationally, then there's an awful lot of resources, 99 bucks and 99 cents of real resources that you can buy for that that piece of paper. And, you know, the French said, well, okay, Europe needs to have that too. So it was called exorbitant privilege of the dollar, and Europe's euro mm. was an attempt to try and square the circle there. The problem is that the euro is not up to it. And although up to about 2010, many uh, Asian economies had large euro deposits uh, in their reserves, 
the Eurozone banking crisis from 2010 to 2012 uh, opened their eyes to the instability and fragility of the Eurozone system. And people have swung back to dollars uh, you know, ever since then. So the dollar is still the dominant asset in, uh, in foreign exchange reserves. Uh, move on to China, what China's trying to do. China has a policy, a stated policy. I put a very juicy quote in my book, Capital Wars, uh, from the People's Liberation Army, one of the generals there who's often a spokesman uh, for the Chinese Communist Party, who very explicitly says it's the aim of Chinese policy to displace the dollar, uh, within, certainly within the Asian region and then more broadly. And he articulates that uh, Chinese policy is geared to that, with the Belt and Road Initiative being a very important plank in that whole policy. So, you know, that's their intentions. Make, make no, you know, <laughs> let's make no bones about that. It's absolutely clear. It's explicit. They want to get rid of the dollar. The problem that China's got is that China is hooked on the dollar right now, and it's very difficult to China to get off, but it needs to. China essentially re-exports dollars right now when it should be exporting yuan. And so China is embarking on a series of initiatives to try to internationalize the yuan. Now, the first of those, uh, which hasn't happened yet, but is probably not that far away, is to re-denominate international trade in yuan. Now, if China is the world's biggest exporter and importer, that's not such a difficult task for it to do. It would just at the stroke of a pen, say, we're going to have these goods now invoiced in yuan, okay? Uh, will they do that? Almost certainly, because they have already set up, I believe the number is 36 swap lines around the region mm. where uh, foreign governments or foreign central banks can swap their currency into yuan if they need yuan. The only reason for those swap lines is for that for those transactions. The second thing they do is they open up the bond market to foreign capital. And that's what they've done quite successfully. And with Chinese bonds having quite high yields, that has proven attractive. Although, you know, one has to admit, uh, in this year, there's been an outflow of capital from China, because people have been spooked by what's been going on in the COVID crisis. But longer term trends, there's been certainly a, a move of bond money into China. And the third thing is setting up a digital yuan, uh, which can compete and allow peer-to-peer -peer transfer uh, uh, of a yuan uh, in, in terms of you know, the world economy. It's a trusted framework. Now, as we say in the book, it's not simply about the digital yuan that's the key thing. It's China selling the architecture and the know-how of how to create a digital currency to other governments, be it Russia or be it Iran or be it India or whoever it may be, that then locks them into that system. And the problem that we identify is that the US, which is in many ways has been the leader in digital technology, digital currencies, uh, and international transfer, is being sort of hampered uh, paradoxically by the SEC in the US in terms of rolling out some of these models in the international uh, arena. And the US needs to, hmm. US Congress needs to you know, think about this. And this is a capital war. Okay, it's it's you versus China. You've got to get out there and get your currency and your, uh, you know, your crypto or whatever digital currencies moving in the world economy. That's a way to thwart China's challenge. 
And, you know, those are some of the issues that we address in the book. China is coming, make no mistake, but it's not there yet. And China faces a lot of problems near term in terms of uh, of its economy. Uh, these things are clear. But, you know, China takes a long-term view, and we've got to remember that. When you say China is a re-exporter of U.S. dollars, can you explain what that means, why China is hooked on that, right, to use your own analogy? And then I'd love to get your thoughts on, you know, one of the limitations uh, for China to be an issuer of something that looks like or smells like a reserve currency is they do not allow for the free flow of capital within their borders, right? And people, have, investors are very concerned about COVID this year, but last year it was, you know, uh, essentially wiping out Chinese tech stocks, uh, just basically the ability of the, the government to act in a unilateral way. So maybe if we could just cover both those points, how is China hooked and, and an, at a re-exporter of US dollars? And then do you ever see investors getting over the, the, the interference of the CCP? Well, I mean, on, on the first point, it, it's basically arithmetic. I mean, what you've got is that, you know, China uh, has a huge trade surplus, and it sees vast inflows of foreign direct investment, or certainly has done over the years. And together, those enable China to build up foreign exchange reserves. And those foreign exchange reserves are basically held, or they're, they're dollar-based. Uh, they're held in largely U.S. securities. Uh, and the Chinese have also embarked more latterly on uh, foreign direct investment uh in the Asian, largely in the Asian region, but actually one would also say extensively in Africa. Uh, and a lot of those FDI flows, the Belt and Road Initiative money, uh, is basically dollar is dollar spending. So the, the, at the moment, the Chinese are spending their trade surplus, uh, if you like, or their, their 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 foreign exchange reserves on a lot of these items. Now, uh, in the longer term, they may not be accumulating U.S. Treasuries. Well, who knows about that? I mean, that's a that's a, a moot point, uh, which means that if they're running a large trade surplus, they're going to have to start uh, more foreign direct investment, more Belt and Road Initiative stuff. But actually, realistically, from a Chinese point of view, uh, given the fact that they control the printing presses of the yuan, it would be much more in their interest to actually do that using yuan uh, rather than U.S. dollars. Uh, you know, yuan, they can create at the, uh, the sort of press of a switch, uh, much, much more efficient for them to do that. And that's what you tend to see through history, uh, the history of currencies. You know, if you look at uh, look at the uh, Britain and the British pound, uh, you know, sterling was used to accumulate, uh, you know, a vast uh, empire internationally. Uh, if you look at what the US dollar's done, I mean, it's paralleled that, uh, you know, US dollars have bought lots of, uh, you know, very attractive international assets. Uh, and you know you can see, in many ways, look at the at the U.S. balance of payments uh, in exchange for U.S. safe assets, U.S. treasuries, and U.S. currency. Um, that though, though, those uh, that that money, those resources, have been used by Americans to buy uh, assets internationally. Pretty good deal from the U.S. perspective. China wants to do the same. That's a way of getting seniorage and extending your economic power. So I think that's that's what I'm trying to argue on that point. I think in terms of mm. uh, looking at the uh, at the point you raise about trust, absolutely critical. That's for sure. But then you know you've you've got to say that you know the there is a a, a sort of conspiracy of uh, of interests of those countries that uh, basically are being alienated by the U.S. at the moment. So if you if you look at what happened at the BRICS conference uh, in June of this year, uh, so the BRICS are you know uh, looking at Brazil, China, India, Russia, South Africa, uh, throwing their Saudi Arabia. Uh, those countries committed themselves 
to creating a rival currency to the US dollar at the last BRICS meeting. Now, whether this is a genuine uh, attempt at a rival currency or it's essentially uh, a Chinese yuan in sheep's clothing, I don't know. But that's another thing to bear in mind because you know if the Saudis get into this as well, uh, the Russians are there, then you have got a serious, potentially a serious challenge uh, to the dollar uh, because these are all big economies. And if they're using a rival currency, uh, then there's an issue. Now, uh, it, it won't be straightforward for them because there are a number of things that come with operating a reserve currency. And one is a banking system, an ability to create credit. Uh, and a lot of the points that you raise are absolutely valid. Will the China, If the Chinese were in control, would they be lender of the last resort to another country internationally? What would they demand for the, from that, etc.? So it's a, there's a lot of interesting questions that are posed in that particular instance. So I think that we're realistically a long way away, but we're still traveling down that road. All right, uh, Michael, I'd love to maybe just sum up uh, everything that we're talking about and kind of get your your view, right? Like, let's say over the next, um, let's say 12 months to, <laughs> I was gonna say 12 months to, to three years timeframe here, right? So what should we be expecting just in terms of liquidity conditions, right? I think we're actually recording this as Jerome Powell is speaking to us from from Jackson Hole, right? So give give us a sense of, you know, the Fed right now is in this in, in this period of talking tough and being hawkish. And, you know, Jerome Powell is making comparisons to himself as, you know, the new Volcker, right? We want to be Volcker and not and not Burns. Um, how, you know, how should we be expecting the, the Fed to behave? And how is that going to impact liquidity conditions writ large, let's say over the next one to three years? Okay. Well, there's an old saying, which is there are no doves in central banking heaven. So you know, <laughs> we've, we've got to think about that in terms of the of uh, Jerome Powell's legacy. And he wants to be thought of mm. as uh, another Volcker, in which case, you know, basically he has to be tough. And what you can't do is to, uh, as we've seen in the last, um, you know, four or five months, allow the stock market to revive again on hopes of uh, falling interest rates. Now, I think if you unpack what's happened in the markets, uh, basically what you've seen, I mean, this is slightly wonkish bond talk, but, you know, hey, let's let's go down that road. What you've seen uh, is uh, over the last few months, you've seen a rally in treasuries and then a more recent sell-off. But almost all of that gyration in the market has been to do with rate expectations. So in other words, a bond has two components to it, a rate expectation, something called a term premium or risk premium. Now, What's happened in the US is that the term premium over that period has consistently fallen and rate expectations have seen a V. They collapse, which is good for equities, make no mistake, but I don't think Powell wants that message. And now they've gone up again, so they've got back to where they were. So equities should be you know, no, no better off than they were four or five months ago, but they're higher. That's odd because what you've seen is term premium fall significantly. The question that policymakers and investors should be asking is why is the term premium on the US 10-year treasury at all-time lows right now? That's either because of, number one, a shortage of liquidity, number two, structural shortage of uh, safe asset treasuries in the world, or number three, there's a huge recession coming. Any one of those three is not good news for equity markets. So my view is for the next six months, keep out. Stay away. 
Same with crypto. Keep out, stay away. The Fed will at some stage pivot. That pivot may well be uh, just going on to hold. I think that's realistic. I find it very difficult to think that the U.S. Uh, Fed can raise interest rates in the midst of a recession, and that recession will be clear by January of next year. It may even be clear in the next two months, but it's certainly coming. Uh, and that's uh, that's one's got to be realistic about that. So I would suggest that sometime in 2023, there will be a turn in U.S. monetary policy. It may not be sudden, and it may not be uh, it may not involve a significant drop in interest rates, but it may mean that the Fed balance sheet begins to grow again. And that's what's important in my view of the world if the Fed balance sheet expands. At the same time, the other big player is China. And China's People's mm. Bank will probably be expanding liquidity in 2023 to pay for some of the promises that undoubtedly Xi Jinping has made to get re-elected. So uh, that, I think, is coming. This is just a political cycle in China. So I would imagine that's also in the frame. So markets may well be going up significantly in 2023. And if the Fed, Fed plays a significant role in that, then you've got to move back to longer duration stuff like technology, cryptocurrency, and whatever. But not now. Just wait a few months. Uh, beyond that, I think it depends very much on your view. My view is that uh, it's not di- it's not different this time. We're still in the we're still in the same cycle, and I think central banks will uh, have to play a bigger and bigger role anyway. So they've got to expand their balance sheets. They've got to expand liquidity. If you expand liquidity, asset markets go up, and equities are beneficiaries. So unfortunately or fortunately, whichever way you look at it, that's the world we're in. Okay, uh, and the only way we get out of that is to get rid of our huge debt burdens, and that's not going to be easy. You need higher interest rates for longer for that, uh, but that may not necessarily stop stock markets going up. Michael, uh, you've already been extremely, extremely generous with your time. It's been a fascinating conversation. I'm going to have to chew over a lot of what you just said. Um, for folks who uh, want to find out more about you, follow your work, what's the best way to do that? Well, you can look at it. Uh, we've got a website, crossbordercapital.com. We've got a Twitter handle, which is crossbordercap. Those are probably the most, the easiest ways to uh, get a view of what we're saying right now. Got it. And uh, for those of you um, who didn't pick up on this, uh, I'll just repeat it again. Uh, Michael wrote book, Capital Wars, The Rise of Global Liquidity. Uh, I highly recommend that you guys all uh, give it a peek. Um, Michael, this has been a ton of fun. Thanks again for your time. We'll have to do it again soon. Great. Great pleasure. Thanks so much. <laughs>